In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard And welcome to another installment of Strange Planet. Great to have you aboard. And if you'd like to get deeper into Strange Planet, you might want to consider becoming a premium subscriber. And there are three monthly premium packages to choose from. It's real simple to, to join, to sign up. Just click on the link in the episode notes, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. You gain access to commercial-free listening, of bonus episodes, special bonus episodes produced just for premium subscribers. And you also get a subscription to my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. A couple of weeks ago uh, on this podcast, and then again on Coast to Coast, I uh, had the great privilege of speaking with uh, Tobe Johnson and Brett Eichenberger, the uh, the producers of the uh, documentary, well, it's a two-part series called Flash of Beauty, Paranormal, uh, well, uh, Bigfoot Revealed, and part two, the most recent one, is A Flash of Beauty, Paranormal, Bigfoot. And um, one of the uh, the esteemed um, participants or guests, researchers, consultants on the on that film, the Paranormal Bigfoot, is one of my. I make no bones about this. One of my favorite guests uh, on this podcast, 
Simeon Hine, uh, of course, the, uh, the author of Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms, uh, a, a book which is attempting to uh, sort of formulate a scientific uh, explanation for, uh, for Bigfoot and many of the so-called paranormal events that seem to surround uh, Bigfoot sightings, like, um, you know, Bigfoot sighting in close proximity to an unidentified flying object or ball lightning or strange space-time anomalies, uh, orbs, um, uh, uh, cloaking, um, all of these strange attributes um, surrounding Bigfoot sightings. And uh, it's always a pleasure, as I say, to welcome Simeon back to the program. Dr. Hine is the director of the nonprofit Institute for Resonance in Boulder, Colorado, uh, which is devoted to the study of subtle energy sciences, including remote viewing, crop circles, and related subjects. He has a, a PhD in sociology and has previously taught research methodology at Washington State University. Uh, he first learned remote viewing in 1996, subsequently became involved in crop circle research and uh, he is uh, the author, as I say, of Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Social Science, or sorry, the Science of Secret Life Forms. Previously, he wrote uh, Black Swan Ghosts, a sociologist encounters witnesses to unexplained aerial craft, their occupants, and other elements of the universe, and Opening Minds, a journey of extraordinary encounters, crop circles, and residents. Simeon, welcome back. It's a strange planet. Oh, thanks very much, Richard. And you're one of my favorite hosts, too. Oh, so it's God bless symmetrical you. here. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you about uh, your involvement in A Flash of Beauty, Paranormal Bigfoot. Yes. Uh, just how you came to uh, to get involved with, with the film and, and the project, Hope Johnson and Brett Eichenberger. Yeah, I was really fortunate to meet the, the those folks at Resonance Productions. Um, I... Uh, I was familiar with their first film, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed, which I really enjoyed. And uh, somehow they found out that I was just completing the Dark Matter Monsters book. And from their first movie, as you know, Richard, they had their witnesses saying things that are a little hard to fit in just a typical nuts and bolts, flesh and blood interpretation of Bigfoot. And, and I think this is what researchers who go into this area always find, is there are things that don't easily fit into your idea of what Bigfoot is if you just think it's an escaped gorilla or a rare primate or a wild man or something like that, right? You know, the, the orbs and the phenomena they talk about in part two. So they contacted me and asked me if they could uh, get my contribution to the sequel. And I thought, wow, I'd love to be part of this. This I'm working on this uh, idea of what could be going on. Why do these creatures, you know, exhibit such fascinating characteristics and affect their surroundings in such inexplicable ways? Right now, um, I uh, I watched most of the film, um, and I'm just wondering. I don't know whether you met any of the the witnesses that were featured in the film or had an opportunity to speak with them yourself, but anything there that you heard that um, in, in terms of paranormal activity associated with Bigfoot, like time slips and cloaking, yeah. all these things, anything that sort of even surprised you? From the witnesses yeah. in both movies? Yes. Um, well, I did get to meet them at the Forks Washington Bigfoot uh, conference. I started going to these conferences in doing research for the book, and it just happened there were a string of them in the Northwest 
and Utah starting last May of this year. So I have been to five Bigfoot conferences in six months, <laughs> which has been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So I got to meet some of the people in the film because they happened to be there for the screening. Some of them live in the Northwest. Uh, was it surprising? Yeah. Even in A Flash of Beauty, Paranormal Bigfoot, there are some witness encounters there that just, you know, I know these things happen, the invisibility, the orbs, but these were some really excellent encounters. And so, especially the two folks at the very end of Paranormal Bigfoot, uh, with their seeing the, the Bigfoot, I won't go into too much detail because we don't want to give away spoilers, but seeing, actually seeing a Bigfoot transform into other shapes and orbs. I mean, it's, 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 it's stunning. That's all I can say. It's stunning. When you go to these Bigfoot conferences and you say you've been to uh, five of them in the last six months, um, is, is there the same kind of divide in the Bigfoot community, if I can use that hackneyed expression community, but the same kind of divide that we see in the UFO community where that seems to be divided into two camps. Uh, one camp is that aliens are here to, you know, to eat us or food. And the other is they're here to save us and they're spiritually enlightened beings. Same kind of divide with Bigfoots. One camp says that they're, you know, escaped gorillas from a zoo or some undiscovered hominid. And the other is that they're perhaps some, I don't know, interdimensional creature. You, you do see people that believe they've reached conclusions about what Bigfoot is. And I've seen this at UFO conferences too. And they're really, they get kind of ingrained into their committed position. I think Deepak Chopra called that a premature cognitive commitment in his language, is you sort of reach a conclusion about what reality is. And, um, and you sort of dig in, right? And you start only reading material that supports that point of view and you become increasingly convinced that the other side is just wrong. And, and to be fair, there are witnesses to all types of Bigfoot. So I can completely understand why there's some people, and I've talked to them on during interviews like this, when there's several people on a show, who they tell me, look, I it just seems like a flesh and blood creature. I don't haven't seen anything paranormal around it, and neither have the witnesses, other people I know in my particular state in my particular county, in my area. And then you talk to other people. Uh, my first experience with witnesses was in the Boulder, Colorado area. And there's the Sasquatch Outpost, uh, Bigfoot Museum. I guess that's the best way to describe it. As a, It's a museum, but it has lots of interactive displays and things and maps of current sightings and so forth. Now, I went to some of their conferences uh, hosted by Jim Myers and others. I immediately st started hearing from the presenters about what we would call paranormal phenomena around Bigfoot. It wasn't a stretch at all. All of these people said they had started out thinking it was just some rare relic primate or maybe, you know, type of hominid uh, from the past that survived the ice ages, you know, but they all said they had changed their minds. This is even before I talked to them. They're just presenting this way. They had seen orbs. They had seen invisibility. There was even a presenter from uh, Russia, Igor Bortsev, and he immediately went into some of these types of phenomena around his Russian witnesses where they had seen it go invisible right in front of their eyes and things like this. So 
for me, right from the beginning, uh, I heard accounts of this and it immediately started making me think, why does this seem so similar to UFO encounters? You know, there's a lot of parallels and other types of phenomena that we've all been exposed to on the show that you host sometimes coast to coast. You know, as someone who's listened to that show for decades now, my first interviews there were, you know, with Art Bell. Mm. So you're you're familiar with decades of information about these subjects. And you hear that the, the orbs, the batteries and cameras failing, the sense of time distortion the brain fog, as witnesses call it, you start hearing about that, uh, people having missing time. And then, you know, you've looked at the literature. I wrote a book about it, Black Swan Ghosts, people around UFOs, people who've seen humanoids get out of these craft and suffering these space-time distortions and having their watches stop working. You just start thinking, are we dealing with some overlapping phenomenology where it's the same underlying phenomena around anything we call paranormal. Uh, so to answer your question, your question was, is there sort of a divide? I think there is just because people like to get comfortable in their positions. Uh, I heard at these conferences, people say, no, it's just a rare ape. And they were convinced of this. And they told us, you know, part of the earth it started from and Africa and it migrated over the Bering Straits. I, that's a very nice story. I just don't think it fits the evidence from the witnesses. But yeah, and you do, Richard, you find this in UF, the UFO field too. And it seems sometimes uh, very competitive within these fields uh, because people really, you know, we like to be right. Yeah, yeah I mean, it can, I like, it can even get hostile. <laughs> it, it can get very hostile. Uh, but these conferences were all very pleasant. Um uh, I think the one in Kalispell hosted by Joe Hauser and Dave Polites, hmm. Kalispell, Montana, a couple months ago. I mean, right off the bat, you're hearing about these really strange effects around Bigfoot. And we had Jonathan Dover there, Navajo Ranger, yep. hired by the tribe. You've probably heard him talk to investigate paranormal phenomena on the reservation, including Bigfoot. He told us he has 4,000 hours of law enforcement training, including with the federal government. He has no need to make anything up. And yet he tells us the tracks end in the middle of nowhere. They start in the middle of nowhere. There's shape-shifting involved, UFOs. He even told us his own story of time loss, of getting somewhere early after having some sort of a strange perception. All of a sudden, he's too far down the road. He doesn't need to make these things up. So if you talk to the people that have been involved with this for a while and have talked to the witnesses, you're going to come across these types of weird phenomena, which totally defies this idea that it's just some sort of relic primate, uh, you know, just some sort of rare animal or human or something. It's just a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. Okay. So I want to get into some science here and, um, I need you to hold my hand a little bit here because this is like way above my pay grade. But when you talk about things like relic neutrinos and coherent yeah. matter mm -hmm. as being involved in this phenomenon, what, what do we mean by coherent matter, first of all? Yeah, coherent matter is just another state of matter beyond what we're familiar with. Um, 
we're familiar with the three states of ordinary matter, you know, solids, liquids, and gases. But the most common type of matter in our universe are plasmas. Plasmas are fluorescent light bulbs and lightning and the aurora borealis. And even some flames, if they're hot enough, can turn into a plasma, which is an ionized gas. It's where the electrons have been bumped out of their shells from the energy and they're emitting light. Mm. So we've all seen plasmas. Uh, the big discovery in the last hundred years is that these plasmas can be self-organized. They can condense into a ball. Wow. So instead of being lightning and going all over the place or just a fluorescent bulb, they can condense into a very tight package in a very small space and create ball lightning. Right. And that's what coherent matter is. It was predicted by Bose and Einstein, Satyarenda Bose, who wrote to Einstein in the 20s and said, I think your theories of general relativity suggest another type of matter, where essentially the particles give up their individuality and become one big electron or one big particle. In other words, they stop uh, oscillating to separate frequencies right, and they right. all become one. That's coherent matter. It's a coherency between the particles where they are at the same frequency and the same temperature. And it's it's actually not experimentally proved until 1995 or so at NIST down the road here in Boulder. National Institutes of Standard and Technology creates the Bose-Einstein condensate at absolute zero. You subtract all the energy from these particular gases they have, and it just condenses into one big particle. It's based on quantum mechanics, the wave function. You just subtract the energy until all the particles don't have any individuality left, and it's they all behave like a wave. Interesting. And it's a coherent state. And the big discovery in recent years is you can get that at room temperature, and this turns out to be what ball lightning is is this sort of room temperature coherent matter with a lot of energy there, but something just at room temperature. And that's what coherent matter is. It's just matter that's coordinated instead of each individual uh, atom doing its own thing. And, and what causes essentially ball lightning then? Uh, well, there's different causes for it. It's sometimes associated with thunderstorms, but about 30 or 40% of it uh, it's seen around thunderstorms, about 30 or 40% of it just arises on its own. And it's very similar to what we call orbs. But essentially, it's a group of particles that have a one wave function, and the particles collapse into a very small space, and they emit a lot of light. And at the center of these ball lightnings, ball lightning, and it, you can read about it. I've read hundreds of cases of now. It, it goes back hundreds of years. People have been studying this for a long time. It's been seen to float through airplanes, through the windows and go yeah. down the aisles. People see it go into their homes. Sometimes when it ends, it explodes and can knock people over. Occasionally, uh, it can cause damage, injury, or death. Um, and in the historical cases, it's been known to magnetize non-magnetic materials as it moves around. Um, 
it's been known either they if you read the cases in history people say that ball lightning can transport animals and people we don't know exactly uh-huh. what they mean but it can create can transport you or animals to other locations it, it it's uh, basically it's it's a type of quantum effect this coherency and that's why it was known just as the bose einstein condensate something in the lab but the research shows, and the Air Force has researched this, even though half of their research is redacted. You can't, they won't say what too much more about what they're thinking about it. There was an Air Force study in 2003. But it seems to be a state of matter where all the particles are synchronized, uh, very similar to like a laser. You right. know, the appearance of a laser, that's coherent light. And you can create that coherency with more than photons. You can create it with electrons, um, you can create it with different types of particles. And the net effect is you can condense a lot of energy into a very small space and create uh, what Takeaki Matsumoto called electronuclear collapse. And he wrote a whole, this is his papers that the mm-hmm. Martin Fleisch Memorial Project put out, which is his fascinating all the studies. He concluded that what we see in in labs, what we call cold fusion, is actually a type of micro ball lightning. So this seems to be a key for a lot of different scientific processes. And I would suggest that what we call orbs are also a relative of ball lightning. These are all different phenomena with different ranges of quantum coherency between the particles so instead of things doing their own thing like in the rooms we're in right now everything's at slightly different temperatures yes. frequencies yeah. uh, and so forth and they have distinct appearances in ball lightning coherent matter the particles have given up their individuality uh they're all in lockstep and as a result you get very interesting electromagnetic effects because it's so strong the as the as the particles come together that the attractive forces and this is really the big point here the attractive forces overcome any repulsion that we're familiar with coulombic repulsion we've all heard about this how like charges repel yes. not at very close distances and it was predicted by Wilhelm Weber i just just learned this in the past couple of weeks in 1846 Based on simple Newtonian physics, this, he said the second law, Newton's second law would predict that particles, even though no particles were known back then, it was before the discovery of, of subatomic particles, at very close distances, you know, 10 to the minus 15 meters, it would create negative inertial mass, another type of matter. Wow. Yeah, and and so this is predicted over you know 150 years ago or so that you would get these exotic states of matter when things were packed into a very small space, and you need that coherency for the particles to get very close together. Once they get that close together, you get this hyper strong attractive electromagnetic force predicted by Wilhelm Weber, and there's historical reasons why. Uh, we don't remember him for that. It just has to do with this competition you're talking about a few minutes ago. But you can derive this. You don't even need quantum mechanics, Richard. You can derive this from Newton's second law. It's, uh, let's just call it to answer your question. I know I'm saying a lot here. It's all it's good. A hot, it's extremely strong, attractive force that's been predicted by 
Weber, going back to 1846, and other researchers, when you put particles beyond a certain distance, the repulsion is incredibly weak compared to the attractive force, and you just get these new states of matter, and you could call it a fifth state of matter. All right. Coherent matter, ball lightning. It's really all the same thing. There's different names for it. The reason we don't know more about this, it's mostly been in classified military research, the proof being Lockheed Martin came out with a paper, and I mentioned this in the film, 2016, that's actually the correct date, when the patents approved for coherent matter wave beams. To use coherent matter, this process I'm describing, and this is exactly what they say, we can create Bose-Einstein condensates at room temperature. Just think of flocks of birds, the murmurations where they all seem kind of like a wave of birds. Yes, yes. That's what we're, this is what the Lockheed patent says, a school's of fish, just kind of swimming along kind of like one thing, right? Not They don't have much individuality there, like a wave. They say this could be weaponized and it can be used for cloaking and invisibility, directed energy weapons and all sorts mm -hmm. of other relay. They say related phenomena. So I could only imagine things that almost sounds like teleportation, communication wow. affecting weather systems at a distance. And so when you look at the Bigfoot phenomena and you see a lot of these popping up, the cloaking, the invisibility, the micro ball lightning, my assumption, and I could be completely wrong. I am happy to be shown I'm not correct, but you have to assume this is the same thing that Bose and Einstein were talking about, that, that this is what people have been talking about since Weber of what happens when you bring particles very close together, you get new states of matter. It seems like the Bigfoot know how to deal with this state of matter because it's natural. It's part of nature. We look at his technology, but it, it's how nature works, which is why you see ball lightning occasionally here and there in nature under different circumstances, tornadoes, yeah. thunderstorms and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, uh, that's an excellent uh, summation of uh, coherent matter and ball lightning. We'll uh, come back yeah. and, and um, delve some more into uh, coherent sure. matter, its relationship to Bigfoot, relic neutrinos. Uh, and much more. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Simeon Hine right here on Strange Planet. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. 
Dr. Simeon Hines stays with us. Dark matter, monsters, cryptids, ball lightning, and the science of secret life forms. And you can also see uh, Simeon in a flash of beauty, the uh, documentary series about Bigfoot. Uh, Bigfoot revealed and uh, paranormal Bigfoot. And um, again, we had Toby Johnson and Brett Eichenhorn on the, uh, on the podcast and on Coast to Coast a couple of weeks ago talking about this. So we were talking about coherent matter. And I, you, I was going to ask you, is uh, coherent matter responsible for Bigfoot or is Bigfoot creating or, or manipulating the coherent matter to create the ball lightning? And you sort of, you, that's where we kind of left off. So just kind of let's back up and repeat that. Which is it? Is, is the coherent matter and the ball lightning somehow responsible for Bigfoot or is this entity we call Bigfoot manipulating the coherent matter to create ball lightning? Wow, that's it's like a chicken and an egg question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, Richard. Uh, I would suggest that this is a type of very intelligent creature on our planet that knows how to manipulate frequencies. Just like we know how to sing or play guitar and things like this. They've taken this to a whole new level. They've learned how to take sound and frequencies and use it to create coherent matter because it's natural because it's it's how nature works which is why plasmas are 95 percent of the universe and ball lightning's natural and so forth you can create it in a lab it exists out in nature and i think we have to go based on the evidence is that people say they went out looking for bigfoot where bigfoot had been seen they go to these so-called hot spots and all they saw were orbs instead or strange luminosities or as we see in a flash of beauty, paranormal Bigfoot, they can transform themselves into orbs, which is what witnesses have actually told me they've seen around here in the Rockies, as hard as it is to believe. But you have to keep in mind that the newer the phenomena, the more outlandish it's going to seem to your brain, because our brains tend to get set in their ways. And we're having debates in Congress right now about revealing UFOs and having committees to investigate the evidence. And we're getting a lot of blowback from, you know, the Department of Defense, apparently, uh, about this Schumer legislation. And and what it is, is I'm, I'm speaking as a sociologist. And, and this is a, something that Jacques Vallée, the UFO researcher, uh, has said many times. You know, he worked with uh, J. Allen Hynek is the stranger the story, the more hard it for is it for your mind to accept. And I'm no different than you. I When I started in this in the 90s, I wasn't even sure remote viewing was real. I never, No one ever told me about it. All of a sudden you hear that people have this ability to describe distant locations without knowing what they're, you know, and you take the class and you say, there's something really going on here. This is profound. It's like that with all of these subjects. And so to answer your question, I think, yeah, I think this is a creature that knows how to manipulate matter and use it to slip into other dimensions next to us. So this is why they could be around you. And I'm not trying to unnerve people, but I think the reality suggests they're around and you don't know it. They probably can perceive you and you don't perceive them and they probably just want to be left alone. And then they have a material state too. And I think... This is borne out by the research at Skinwalker Ranch, which uh, was funded for a time by our own Department of Defense and the OSAP program, later known as ATIP. Uh, the research at Marley Woods by another J. Allen Hynek associate, Ted Phillips. 
Uh, there's a ranch here in Colorado in Elbert County that I'm told has the same phenomena. Bradshaw Ranch, there's a new documentary about that that I saw in Vernal about in Sedona. And it's the very similar phenomena. You orbs and strange effects, you know, as they always say in Skinwalker Ranch, if you ever follow that show, batteries, all of a sudden the equipment's not working. And again, I'm not trying to alarm people, but shape-shifting life forms. I This is going to be one of the hardest things to accept for us, but they're real. I've talked to enough people that have seen it with their own eyes. These are people you've never heard about. They haven't shared their stories with many people. They don't want the ridicule, the stigma, right? You can get ostracized. It happens to me. Even my friends sometimes sort of mock me a little bit for some of these subjects because they seem so outlandish. But that, I feel it's my responsibility to share what witnesses have experienced. It's not fair to push these people into a closet because they've experienced some scientific phenomena like electricity, which at one time was probably weird too. Mm. So yeah, I think they can manipulate this matter. And I think, as I mentioned in the movie, if Lockheed Martin is filing a patent for it in around our time, we there's almost nothing we invent that nature doesn't already do. Everything we invent is just a refinement of natural energies, plasmas and electromagnetism and, and, and these subjects, fractal geometry. This is what nature already does. And if we're patenting it, it, it just seems to make sense that there's other life forms that probably already know how to do this. And they're probably using it in, you know, in a very strategic way on in the way they live if if we could become invisible uh easily i'm sure that would be used uh, at least as a minimum on the battlefield i mean you might use it yourself you see someone walking down the street you don't want to talk to you might be convenient to become invisible very quickly uh but humor aside i you just have to project a little bit to what we know about how nature works and about history and the history of science it would be highly egotistical of us to assume we just invented coherent matter and we patented it, you know, and now we own ball lightning. You know, nature has been doing this for millions of years. It needs a planet to create coherent matter. In space, it's just a plasma. It needs to condense. We have hot fusion reactors, these big Theodore Geiger-like coils that cost billions of dollars. You've seen these hot fusion mm-hmm. reactors. They never have worked for more than a couple trillions of a second. No, because nature already figured out how to create its own containment field. And to answer your question, again, just to go back, it's created by frequency. By controlling the frequency of these particles, you can align them. And what is so fascinating about the Lockheed Martin patent, I've read it four or five times. It, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's free. It's a pat, It's on the patent. You have to say what the patent's about. We can all read this. You create it by subtracting energy from a system until it settles down to one frequency. Isn't that kind of cool? It is very Instead cool. of adding noise and more, we're, we're always used to like pushing on the gas pedal harder. This mm-hmm. is taking your foot off the gas pedal and keep subtracting energy until everything settles down into one frequency and becomes like one big particle. And then it starts glowing. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. So people see this orbs and ball lightning. It's all even Richard, even the ball lightning, cut and dried atmospheric scientists. I'm talking, you know, uh people that write books about ball lightning. Ca- 
call it overlapping phenomenology because it overlaps into the topic of earth lights, things that are seen at Hustal in Norway. I mean, that scientists have been out in that area and they see these things go across and these are seen in other areas and they're called mobile luminous objects. I mean, that sounds kind of scientific, MLOs. Some people call them earth lights. And then you had David Freiberger at uh, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center write a paper about this a couple of years ago. And he said, no, these are all the same phenomena. They are different degrees of coherency. He called it a vorton. You can call it what you want, a highly strong magnetic field, you know, strong magnetic field that contains the plasmas naturally. And uh, and he said, earth lights, mobile luminous objects, and even some UFOs, th th this is all the same thing. So don't ask me to completely explain how it all connects, but they are even saying it looks like UFOs, but we think they're Earth lights. But you have statements from people like John Ramirez, ex, you know, former CIA technical analyst who's been on a number of shows very mm -hmm. openly, said he's allowed to talk about this. No one's told him not to. They had the keyhole satellites which are up, are in, up in orbit there that see pretty much the whole planet, we're told. And they called them stealth plasmas. They come in and they go invisible. I mean, they, they see them in infrared, but you won't see them with your eyes. So we go all the way from ball lightning, natural ball lightning that people see even sometimes, you know, different places, thunderstorms, but even just without thunderstorms, to orbs, to earth lights, to UFOs. And it seems to be a spectrum of phenomena that are all around the same fundamental principles. If it is UFOs coming into our atmosphere and going into stealth mode, which uh, people like Ken Shoulders talked about it, he called it a black Evo because it's dark or invisible. And, you know, skinwalkers at the Pentagon, you know, Jay Stratton, we know he was Axelrod. Now he talked about encountering these with his group of DIA analyst as they're walking down a path, you know, it's a completely black orb. If it's the same thing, these are a whole range of phenomena and you would expect life forms to take advantage of it, to interact with it. And it seems that the UFOs, be they extraterrestrial or interdimensional, can also interact with this. So I would just suggest that this type of coherent matter is highly prevalent on Earth. It takes a lot of different forms. It may seem really bizarre and strange, but the evidence seems to suggest that this is related to many paranormal phenomena, even ghosts. It explains a lot. It explains a lot. Um, you get the temperature changes. How often have you heard around haunted sightings where it seemed cold all of a sudden? Uh, I've talked to witnesses that said that happened when they saw a UFO just over an area. All of a sudden, just they had to put their jackets on in July. You just have to believe we're talking about a continuum of of phenomena here. If someone is listening to this, Richard, and they say, I don't, I think it's different. I don't think ghosts have anything to do with UFOs. Fine. But then you come up with a theory and the evidence to show while they're different phenomena. I'm going to take the Einsteinian point of view, which is simply that if things look the same, unless you can show that they're really different, they're the same. It's the unified paranormal theory. We'll uh, right. come back right. more of my conversation with Simeon Hyde. Okay,
The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Dr. Simeon Hine and uh, all of the websites uh, for Simeon are in the episode notes, simeonhine.com and uh, mountbaldy.com, darkmattermonsters.com. Just uh, click on the links. Uh, Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms. And uh, we are talking about um, Bigfoot uh, and its uh, relationship to quantum mechanics. Uh, what are relic neutrinos and how do they fit into this? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um we're familiar, most of us, with the idea of solar neutrinos, if you've looked into this at all. These are very small, fast-moving particles that are so small, you don't interact with them. They go through your body, and they don't see you there because they're that tiny. And there are detectors around the planet. There's some in uh, Antarctica, South Dakota, I think. There's another lab in Japan where they look for these solar neutrinos. They only get like one interaction a day or something it's, it's rare the trillions of these have to pass through they're so small you're like nothing those are the solar neutrinos but that's not what the relic neutrinos are they're another type of neutrino that comes from the big bang or around that time period while the early universe was forming they're a type of particle that decoupled from physical matter and they are still coming from background radiation and the reason they matter to us is they're relatively big and slow they're slow and big so they interact with cells they interact with molecules and they interact with you when you go outside you're coming in contact with according to what i read about 10 million a second of these relic neutrinos and the reason they're significant to what we're talking about here is they catalyze reactions. They act like a catalyst for biological and chemical reactions. A uh, person that studied this a lot was Alexander Parkhamov, uh, before in the Soviet Union, then Russia, who created these home-built relic neutrino detectors where he had a little bit of radioactivity and he found that the angle that his telescope was pointed, his relic neutrino telescope, it would affect the uh, radioactive decay rates based on where it was and where the, the earth was pointed into the galaxy. So he concluded that this is a type of particle that is attracted to other gravitational objects and it's lensed and fluxed by other stars and other galaxies and so forth and it affects biological and chemical reactions you know plant growth and chemical reactions and so forth they are actually it's considered to be and this is why it matters for these types of reactions it's bosonic which means it enhances reactions it adds energy to systems either through the weak nuclear force or gravitationally but we can't detect it uh, directly because it doesn't have any electromagnetic signature. It's purely through gravity and some of these uh, radioactive processes, which seem to vary based on the time of day, position of the planet, and so forth. And in his book, Space Earth Human, uh, it's another book produced by the MFMP, the folks that did the Matsumoto book. Um. He really shows a lot of graphs where you get this variation in things that your chemistry or 
physics class would have said, this is constant. It's not affected by the universe. It goes in the direction. I'm not saying it is astrology, but it goes in the direction that there's cosmological forces that affect reactions here. And what researchers like Matsumoto and others found is neutrinos are an integral part of cold fusion, low energy nuclear reaction, which is a type of micro ball lightning. So it seems to enhance ball lightning and micro ball lightning effects. Um, the interesting thing is, if you think this sounds controversial, relic neutrinos, and the idea that they're a tiny component of dark matter, maybe a half percent, even, even NASA and CERN have said they're probably a half percent, a percent of dark matter is these relic neutrinos, just because there's so many of them, they outnumber regular matter, even 1% wow. outnumbers regular matter. There's so much of them, and it's always coming down on the earth. Um, even neutrinos were controversial, Richard. When Enrico Fermi proposed the neutrino in 1930, nature wouldn't publish it. Nature magazine wouldn't. Uh, that's what a little particle. If this sounds weird, that there's something you can't see that matters. Uh, the neutrino was necessary to make subatomic physics work. This is what Paul Dirac uh, found. And people like Enrico Fermi, and eventually they said, it, it, there's some energetic component here that we're missing. And they just said, we'll call it the little neutrino. And in, it's Italian neutrino is the little neutron. And Fermi said, this has to exist. And, that, and, and at the time, it was considered paranormal or weird. And they wouldn't publish it until it's proven experimentally later. So these relic neutrinos are one type of neutrino that... Uh, there are probably very, lots of different types of neutrinos. It's one that seems to catalyze reactions. Uh, be It seems to be important in microball lightning, cold fusion, Lenner reactions. Uh, I have to say one thing about cold fusion. It initially was thought to be a fusion of neutrons, just like you get with you know hot fusion, what we're told happens on the sun, if that's what's happening. And what they're trying to reproduce in these big hot fusion experiments in these reactors, you know, these billion dollar projects around mm -hmm. the world, which you and I, since we were kids, we're always told fusion energy is about 10 years away. And we've been told this since we were teenagers mm -hmm. and it's still not here because it doesn't seem like they completely understand what they're dealing with. Uh, cold fusion, I for the critics, the people that criticized Fleischmann and Pons and so forth, it doesn't appear to be cold fusion. They, they were right in that respect. You're not getting fusion. It doesn't have anything to do with neutrons. It has to do with neutrinos and what's called uh, anti-neutrinos. Take your pick. They're just a different uh, charge. But um, so these neutrinos do seem to matter. And these relic neutrinos, because they're so big and they're so slow, they're on the scale of microns to millimeters. You know, your millimeters are something that, you know, you're starting to get to our scale. Their wavelength is big enough to interact with us, with biological systems. They vary based on the position of the Earth. And, and I have to say one parallel here to remote viewing. Um, it was found that there's something called sidereal time in remote viewing, where your accuracy is affected based on the position of the Earth relative to the Milky Way. Wow. It seems like that because... Just like the position of the Earth to the Milky Way seems to affect RV accuracy and people thought maybe there's some sort of electromagnetic energy coming from the center of the galaxy or something. It seems like that a good parallel to relic neutrinos, the Parkhamoff data that show that there's these seasonal variations. Even people have found their cold fusion reactors are seasonal. 
it's not type of technology we're used to. Our technology, and you know, it just works. They, they, this is sensitive to environmental factors because there are neutrinos involved, if that's what it is. So that's that's how they matter to to these phenomena and anything related to ball lightning and orbs. And of course, this would explain why cold fusion reactions are so finicky. Right. Because there's seasonal factors, there's time of day, things like this. Yeah, the experiment Uh, can't be repeated. And this is what Google found when they attempted to replicate Parkhamov's 225-day reactor. They couldn't do it. But I asked the people that know Parkhamov, why, why did Google fail? Yeah, I'm sure they wanted to create cold fusion Leonard, you know, unlimited battery life in their Pixel phone or something like that. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to have phones that never need to be charged and so forth, devices? They couldn't do it. And I asked the people who know Parkamov, what, what, what did they miss? They didn't quite completely do what he did. And there are little subtle factors like that. It can be affected by where the thing is in the room. People have found that if the windows are closed for too long in these Leonard reactors, they stop working. Cold neutrino, the relic neutrinos get cut off. That's one theory about why that could happen. So we're talking about a a sort of a contextual technology, if you can kind of imagine that, that the, 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 the cosmological factor, something that we normally don't pay attention to. I mean, we're probably just concerned about solar flares, you know, and things like that, which can occasionally cause massive damage to our electrical substructure, let alone we're not thinking about the Milky Way or cosmic rays. Yeah, cosmic rays are the local group of galaxies. This is what the researchers tell us is these seem to affect these. They're kind of contextual uh, cosmologically. It's just a fascinating component of and that's that's relic neutrinos. Wow. Um I was. I wanted to get back for big to Bigfoot for a second, and there was a gentleman in the film. I think it was a father son who yeah. had this sighting, and the father was saying, you know, trying to calculate the odds that they they witnessed this phenomenon, Bigfoot shape shifting. Said, what it would that be? One in a billion? One in two billion? You know, and asking himself, why us? So I'm wondering whether. Because when we get into things, you know, like quantum physics, the the influence of the observer, uh, and whether that explains, um, or how to explain why some people see Bigfoot, others don't see Bigfoot. Why some people see not only one UFO, they say tw- they see twenty UFOs every other week. Does it have to do with the observer effect in quantum physics? Right. So the observer effect, that is, there's a lot of debate around that, Richard. And and, and there's other interpretations. It's not, it's not just that you're creating the reality by perceiving it. it it's that they're different versions of reality and you're only, only interacting with your version of it at one time, but the other versions still exist. You know, the idea of parallel realities. Hugh Everett III, and so forth. Because people have taken issue with this concept of what the observer effect is. And and there's no real agreement about how it actually works. The fathers of quantum mechanics couldn't understand why your measurement, this is actually the essence of quantum mechanics. I mean, you're bringing it up. How could the measurement affect the process itself? 
And, and and they the only way they could resolve this would was to say, well, the whole wave function is just collapsing from all the multitude of possibilities into one version when you perceive it. But people like Einstein and others, you know, they weren't really satisfied with that answer. As Einstein said, does that mean that a mouse that comes out of its hole at night creates the moon for a few seconds while it's looking and the moon disappears again? It, it seems a little beyond what we experience. I mean, I would we sort of think things are there even when we're not looking at them. So the way to interpret the measurement problem, which people other the way to look at it is to say all the realities exist, but you're in a slice. You're the one in the slice, Richard. Uh, yeah. It's not that you're creating it. You fell in that slot in the pinball machine of that version of the wave function that they all the possibilities, a, a wide range exist. And that you're only in one version of it, but the other version still exists. And so our Bigfoot creatures that seem to know how to navigate space-time in a way that they can shift to other versions that the wave function would describe. You know, are they, is what we call shape-shifting is that literally the ability to move between parallel realities or are they literally turning as you saw in the movie? Are they literally, I, I, people have described this to me. I spoke to someone recently that said they'd seen this. Are they literally turning into other animals to hide from us in front? I, I know to, again, to listeners, that's going to sound really, yeah, this is what people describe. They've seen them turn into other animals. They've seen them, turn into tree stumps and things like this. Are they literally doing that? Or is it your idea that it's something about our perception that uh, it, that it looks that way? I mean, I have to go back to my conversation with Jay Stratton and Vernal. Uh, and he responded to me when I talked about the black ball lightning. And he's someone that worked, you know, in OSAP, UAP task force, and whatever else that we don't know. He said, is it black ball lightning or is that our brain's best perception of it? Is it something else entirely? We don't even know what it is. And that's how he and his group saw that thing at Skinwalker Ranch. So there's a couple questions there, but the evidence does suggest what you're saying. You have groups of people who see a Bigfoot and they can't even agree later what they saw. They, they, some people say it looked more like a cat, hmm. cat ape. Some people said, no, that was a caveman. Definitely looked like a cat. I said, no, no, that was more like a, an ape, you know, but they really can't agree. It's not a subtle difference. So is it our perception of it, Richard, or is it, do they sort of exist with this multifold uh, sort of waveform description, this sort of this sort of amorphous description and we're the ones that are seeing them as ape men. Uh, I think that's what Eric Bard brings up in the movie when he says, I really have to wonder what, after looking at that footage from Barb Shoup, which is available, you know, on YouTube. And I'd seen it before it was in the movie where they had seen something with their eyes, but the camera sees it like a predator shimmering yes, image. Yes. What is the real nature of it? And you have Eric Bard in the movie asking, is this sort of Bigfoot, image that we're familiar with the huge hairy linebacker as broad as a barn door and really tall is that an avatar yeah and it goes back to your question half an hour ago is are they creating the balls of light 
is the ball of light creating them? You know, are we dealing with some type of life that has this innate shape-shifting ability? So it has a, a, a multifold aspect and we, we're, our perceptions familiar and comfortable with the idea of it being an ape man, right? Absolutely. But maybe it's more than that and we can only see that aspect of it. So, uh, yeah, it does have different aspects. And I'm always amazed in these witness accounts where they can't agree later on what it was, what they saw. You know, it's, it, it's what is it the perception or is it actually changing in front of them? It's just a really good question. Really good question, Richard. Um, are, you, are you going to apply or have you applied this, the coherent matter, um, not theory, but coherent matter to explain other cryptids. I, I don't know if there are there other examples where people have uh, sort of paranormal type experiences surrounding the sighting of I don't know a chupacabra or yeah some other uh, the Loch Ness monster. No, so this is a really good question, and I think about this a lot because cryptids. There is a, a sort of a formal academic definition of it. It's a rare animal. It's just a very rare animal. Animal, And we apply this to these more exotic creatures that we're not sure even what we're dealing with. And, you know, beyond Bigfoot, there's Dogman. You know, as Stan Gordon believes, I've talked to him a couple of times, you know, from Pennsylvania, and he's been studying this since 1959, before I was born. And uh, perhaps you too. Uh, he says, no, I think Dogman's a variation of Bigfoot. The, there are different variations of Bigfoot. Are we dealing with a different type of creature altogether? And then there's all ranges of humanoids. Some it's very hard to know even what to call them. James Shupsky uh, from Bingen, Margie's outdoor store, he calls them one-off cryptids. I mean, because they've been seen once by reliable witnesses, but no one else has seen them again. And he described some of, some of these to me in his interviews around the Columbia Gorge over there. So... Um, does it apply to these cryptids? To some extent, I think it does because the dogmen have this invis invisibility factor sometimes. Also, people have described the dogmen moving around like a cartoon character from Bugs Bunny or something at their campsite where it's like it doesn't seem to move in the intervening space. It's like jump cuts. Again, yeah. your question, is it perception? Is it our perception of it? Do they jump through space-time like that? I wouldn't be surprised if some of these cryptids, yes, they can slip walk, jump through space-time. We have to use our imaginations here. Throughout history, reality has turned, always turned out to be more complex than we thought it was. So if you just project what we have now around us that would have seemed unbelievable a couple hundred years ago, project that unbelievability to your own beliefs. And yes, there are probably cryptids that can do this Maybe not all of them. Maybe the Loch Ness Monster is just really an ancient type of serpent or snake or, I mean, huge serpent-like animal that's more 3D. But some of these definitely, I mean, the, the people describe this nausea they get around them and confusion. And uh, uh, it just doesn't seem like a typical animal, even if it's rare. I don't, I've never experienced that, those symptoms around the, the zoo or going to wild places where you see natural wildlife. I've never experienced any disorientation or anything like that, but around these types of cryptids. And then again, there's debate whether Bigfoot is a 
cryptid or not. But it, this genre of creatures, there are these effects which suggest that they can manipulate space-time. Uh, again, the manipulation of space-time is a direct feature of coherent matter. And I'll just tell you why very quickly. Ken Shoulders, who worked at SRI, colleague of Hal Putoff, uh, worked in the electronics industry for the NSA and was hired to look at John Hutchinson's uh, research in Canada around fractured metal samples, again, room temperature, Hutchinson recreating Tesla technology. He came to the conclusion that this was all, again, variants of micro ball lightning, ball lightning, coherent matter, and that it literally changes. This is Shoulder's own ideas about it, but it's you look at other researchers, they came to the same conclusion. It literally bends space-time. When you get coherent matter like that, and all the particles are at the same frequency, you don't have electromagnetic constants the way they are right now for you or me. Or our equipment wouldn't be working. We, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Permittivity goes down. Variable speed of light comes into play. Wow. It would seem paranormal if you yeah. didn't know what was happening to you. But if you had read Ken Shoulders or Shaq Paranoff from Russia, who've talked about these permittivity bending effects of some of these... Lenner experiments that they've done and so forth, it all starts to sound very familiar. It can create these space-time distortions. They describe their own batteries and failing in the lab, credit cards being erased. It, it starts to sound familiar. So again, it, it, these are natural processes and it, it does seem that they're life forms. This is why I call the science of secret life forms that have uh, taken advantage of this. I mean, is our government going to tell us about this? Probably not. I mean, it's kind of it could be seem scary to go outside to realize that these are outside and they can anytime you go out in any area that's not you know ov overly urban you can encounter them as people do i just discovered there was a sighting in boulder of bigfoot near a friend of mine had seen something walk past his hot tub when he was out in his backyard one night on two legs and it was very dark and he he pretended not to be there he was hoping he would just keep going and he always asked me, was that a Bigfoot? What did I see? I said, I don't, you know, Randy, I don't know. But <laughs> I just found that there was a sighting on the Bigfoot mapping project, which is mentioned in, in the movies, yep. the flash. And I looked and holy moly, just a mile from his hot tub, <laughs> there was a Bigfoot sighting in 2020. And I texted him and we said, I mean, even to me that they're walking around in town. I, I, I'm open-minded. It seems hard to believe, but he saw something that it didn't look quite human, but he wasn't sure. But here's the Bigfoot sighting just a mile away. Maybe they're walking around in backyards. I mean, <laughs> again, I'm not trying to scare anyone, Richard, but let's just deal with reality. This is what people are seeing. I, I think we'll be better off when we have an adult discussion about this, Richard. I think Absolutely. we'll come together and we have a lot in common and all of these topics. It's not, we shouldn't be afraid of this. We should embrace it. It's a big universe out there. You know this, you're a host of a lot of radio shows. Let's just be adults about this and engage the topics and have that sense of wonder. That there's things that are out there we don't understand. And yes, there's dangers, but there's also a lot to learn and possibilities. That's where I'm at with this. It's a strange planet. Where are you off yes. to? What's next for Simeon Hine? I am revising uh, Black Swan Ghosts. Because I wrote that book in, uh, it was 20, uh, it was 2013 or so. And there's been a lot of new witnesses I've come across. Um, and um, 
Uh, so I'm revising Black Swan Ghost with about four new cases, really good ones. The, a guy that who worked at Minot as a missile security guard that saw one of these take off right by the silo and then got the typical Air Force treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't be good for your career to talk about this. You know, don't talk to the media. And uh, uh, David Noble White Crow, who saw that huge cylindrical object come over the USS Finch in the 60s during Operation Dominique, the nuclear testing in the South Pacific. Yeah, again, you know, you never saw this. It didn't happen. Please sign here. But, you know, the whole, everyone on deck saw this thing. He talked to the diver that had been sent down to get the object. <laughs> and he oh. know, saw what it was, the, the details of the craft. So I have these cases and even an engineer that handle, told me what it was like to handle reverse, to handle UFO materials, described to me what it looked like oh. under the electron microscope, uh, materials that he told me were a thousand years ahead of where we're at. And this is, I I don't have permission to say this person's name, but this is someone who really knows what they're talking about. And he said, no, this, no way it was terrestrial. Like the, what we're hearing about from Congress right now, this sort of debate. So I'm revising the book to put these cases in and it's a, it's a, it's a fun project. It'll be out uh, probably early next year. Well, I look forward to talking to you uh, when it comes out. Black Swan, yeah. Ghosts Revised. Simeon, yes. blowed my, you blew my mind again. Thank you. Well, Richard, I appreciate your open mind too. And uh, thanks a lot for uh, talking to me today. My pleasure. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.